What does it mean to live life as more than a survivor? Unpacking that question is what we're all about. On this podcast, we speak about life, its ups and downs, and everything in between. Join us as we connect with others and discover more through stories and conversations. Come as you are. Recovering. Healing. Growing. I'm John Westaver. And I'm Michelle Escamilla. And And this this is More Than Than a Survivor Survivor Podcast. Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to More Than a Survivor podcast, where we talk about the ups and downs of life and everything in between. As normal, your two hosts are here, and John, we just finished filming with our special guest, Dennis, and it was amazing. Oh my God, I loved it. It was like, you know, I could, like like you said, I could listen to him all day. He's, he's definitely an engaging speaker. <laughs> Lots to offer it was, for sure. It was so good that we decided that we really couldn't edit out a lot of its content because it was so good and so valuable. So what we've decided to do was to give you a two-parter. Yes. Yes. So we'll have a part one and then we'll do a part two. And uh it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing. You're gonna love it. You're gonna be like, oh, it was totally worth the time. Yes, yeah, so feel free to, you know, hit the rewind or the little button back button on your phone or your computer or wherever you're streaming. There's so many good nuggets, not only for yourself, but maybe there's someone you know that really needs to hear this as well. I think Dennis touched on so many different things that's applicable to so many different people that you got to stay tuned for part one and part two. So without further ado, here's your episode. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the More Than a Survivor podcast. I'm here with you, Michelle Escamilla, and I'm here with John Westhaver and our special guest today, uh, Dennis Garden. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation, and I know, John, that you uh, wanted to share a little bit about how you know Dennis. Yeah, De- I, I met Dennis, I, like I saw in the earlier, saying earlier, um, the pre-recording conversation uh, it's 2002. We met at the uh, Phoenix uh, uh, conference, the World Burn Con- uh, World Burn Congress, uh, which is for burn survivors, and it was held in Phoenix the year, the first year that I attended. And Dennis uh, didn't know me like a, from a hole in the ground sort of thing, and just super super awesome guy. And you know, over the years we've met at different conferences, and just extraordinary human being. You know, just a. a one of those guys that's just uh, of service and of love, you know, and that's what, I, that's what I, that's, that's who you show up as in my world. Wow. 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 I'll, I'll, I'll send a check in the mail for that. Really, really those <laughs> nice words. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that, John. Yeah. 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 I think back then at the, I think I was still on the serving on the board of directors for the Phoenix society. I think back at that time. Cause I did that for about 10 or 11 years. And, uh, and I have to say, uh, the Phoenix society is such an amazing organization, but it's, it, it's part of a community, the burn survivor community, what you guys are doing with this podcast, you just never know who's going to benefit from this, you know, and there's, um, we have this technology available to us where we can go into people's homes or their bedrooms or their kitchens and, and just be um, coming to their lives and you just never know 
who will benefit from this. And I, for one, I can't thank you guys enough for putting the time and effort and just having the heart to do this. Uh, for me, I didn't even know a burn survivor community existed. I didn't know the term burn survivor. I got burned as a kid and I was a burn victim for so very long. And uh, I got burned at 14. And I don't want to get ahead of where we're going, but I got burned at 14. But it was over 20 years before I saw another burned person like me outside of a hospital. And as crazy as it sounds, I thought I was the only person in the world experiencing this. And there was no way anyone could understand what was going on. And I actually uh, wasn't looking for peer support. I wasn't looking for other burn survivors. I wasn't looking for this community because I didn't know it existed. And through a series of circumstances, I stumbled into it. Uh, and stumbling into it, um, it's, it's really interesting because stumbling into this community, I was so thankful that I had found my community, my tribe. But it was bittersweet because it also spoke to me that there are other people who suffered as much as I did. Uh, so it was, it was bittersweet for me, but I'm so very thankful that I stumbled in this community and able to just contribute some small part, you know, and, and just connecting with people like you, Michelle and John. And um, it's just a, a gift for me. And that might be a little mm -hmm. bit long of an introduction, but uh, we're just having this conversation you know, and I have to say thank you to the, to the two of you for allowing me even to be on here, for me being on here, but more than that, for you doing what you're doing to impact someone's life. And I know the people we impact most in our journey are the people we'll never have any idea that we've, we've impacted them. So thank you both for that. And I'm thanking you on behalf of me and a lot of other people just like me. Of <laughs> course. Kind of cool I mean, here. you know, I find it really interesting that right off the top, you were sharing how for a long time you were living as this mentality of victim. And so for folks who are just new to the podcast, like the name, More Than a Survivor, kind of birthed from this conversation. John and I spoke about how um, we were living our lives and both as burn survivors had had different and similar experiences and similarly realized that we no longer felt like the role or the title of victim fit. And also we found that in our lives, we weren't quite sure if we just saw ourselves as survivors. And so we started to unpack and explore what is life as someone who's more than a survivor. So Dennis, hearing you say that you for a while lived with this role, with this identity as victim, we would love to hear your story as to what was that journey like of what it was, what it meant for you to become more than a survivor? Uh, that's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, but I have to preface it by saying, um, being a burn victim, and I'll take the burn off. It's just sometimes people, we focus so much on the trauma or an unpleasant experience that we fight to hold on to our victimhood because I, I'm struggling with something and maybe on some level, I don't feel like, I feel I deserved whatever happened. And we fight to hold on to the victimhood, to be victims, because once I decided not to be a victim, then the real work started. And I guess for me, being more than a survivor, uh, how would I define that? 
I think being more than a survivor, whether it's burns or some other trauma, is living true with who I am. And I'm not sure if that makes much sense, but um, the challenge for me, greater than the burn, was not what it did to me physically. The challenge, my victimhood, came from what it did to me. Not my body, but it was mind, body, and spirit. But the body was, as, as strange as it may sound, the damage to my body was the easy part because I was either going to live or I was going to die physically. And there were doctors and there were nurses and there were medical professionals who were taking care of me physically. Uh, but it's the other part, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual part that was so bruised and damaged that didn't get a lot of attention. It did not get a lot of attention. So being more than a survivor, I think it's healing in a holistic sense. And and being part of a, a the burn community, it provides a holistic continuum of care. Because I got burned uh, well over 50 years ago, and I'm still just as physically burned today as I was way back then. But there are also still challenges uh, that I face today, the internal healing, the emotional healing, the internal scars. And those are the things that, that tend to hinder us. Uh, I spent eight months in a hospital, and, and I don't want to get ahead, but I was burned in a gasoline explosion as a 14-year-old, uh, working on a motorcycle and being very, very careless with it. Because at 14, you may find it hard to believe, but I was brilliant at 14. <laughs> and I was far more, uh, I was so much more smarter than my parents. And I was forbidden to work on my little dirt bike, my motorcycle, and they were taking too long to put it in the shop. And I had a brilliant idea of getting uh, some friends to help me sneak the bike in the basement where we could repair it and no one would see us working on it and we'd be out riding, no harm, no foul. And none of those kids noticed how close we were to the furnace and the hot water tank. So you've got a closed-in space in the basement, you've got gas fumes, you've got gasoline in containers, you've got a furnace, and you've got an open flame under a hot water heater. And it it created the perfect storm for an explosion. And I received 70% total body surface burns as a result of it. And I cannot talk about that without talking about how it impacted the entire family. And we've grown to a point in this community and particularly with the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation where we've expanded upon the definition of burn survivor to include more than just the person physically injured. But burn survivor includes everyone who's impacted by that injury. For me, I spent eight months in the hospital and that was rough, but my mom was there every day. <laughs> So it had to be rougher for her because I was there because I had to be, but every day she had to make the choice to come to the hospital to be with her child. And how she did that, I'll, I'll never know, you know, but I do know that faith played a, a, a major role in that because my mother, had to, my mother and father had to become an advocate for me because the hospital did not want to work on me in the emergency room because my burns were so severe, I wasn't going to survive. But my mother insisted that they do all they could. They wanted to do comfort care. And my mother, um, as long as there's breath in his body, 
she insisted they do whatever they could. She said, because God wasn't going to take me until he was ready. And if he was ready to take me, there was nothing anyone could do. But as long as I was breathing, she insisted on they treat me. And and they did. And I ended up in a coma on life support for three weeks. And that was the beginning of an eight-month hospital stay. And um, anger. <laughs> I was raised in the church. But I hated God because this had to be a mistake and this had to be a punishment. And um, my mom came every day to the hospital and she was a homemaker. And that was back in the days when a homemaker was a noble profession, you know, where she was home and my mom cooked breakfast every morning for her nine kids and her husband. And she cooked dinner every day. And she was the person we saw when we left for school. And she was the first person we saw when we came home. And she was an active part. But now, not only am I burned, but now my mother's no longer in the home either because she's at the hospital with me. And in a lot of ways, that had to be just as dramatic for my siblings as it was for me to not only have a brother that was in the hospital, but to lose their mother. Because as painful as it is to say, my mother abandoned the rest of the family because she was trying to take care of her child. And, this, and, that's, and, and you know, that's very difficult for me to say that because it sounds kind of cold, but she was doing what she needed to do to take care of her child. And I used to look at my mother and sometimes she was look so exhausted because, and, and we hear this and we see this all the time with caregivers, you know, who takes care of the caregiver? Because we know compassion fatigue is real. And I'm not sure if the listeners know what compassion fatigue is, but it would be great, Michelle, if you if, if you explain what compassion fatigue is, because I'm talking about it, but I don't want to talk about something that people may not understand what it is. Um, and my mom didn't feel she had a right to be tired because she she had to take care of me and not her. And my mother probably picked up about 60 pounds over the course of that eight months and her hair had turned snow white and she had these bags under her eyes and she always had this vein in her forehead and she would look so exhausted but my mother wouldn't leave the hospital if i was awake and there'd be days that i would pretend to be asleep so that she would go home and i would hear her talking to the nurses in the hallway and then step on the elevator and hear her say i'll see you guys tomorrow and when I hear that elevator door close, man, I would break down and cry like a baby. I knew my mom needed rest, but I wanted my mama there with me because I was just a scared child in a place that was a very foreign environment, you know, and I know I'm kind of getting away from the physical part, but I think it's important to talk about that. And I'm not even sure if I answered your question or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You did, actually. Um, If I may, I think it's really interesting that you point out that everyone was suffering in their own way. And I think a huge part of what you're saying is perspective. So I know you um, openly share how you would feel a bit bad saying that your siblings may have felt or probably felt like they lost their parent. And I think about how you saw your mom and 
would try to pretend to be asleep so that she could find rest. So I just find it interesting how, you know, in this idea of surviving, we ourselves are so present to what's happening, not only to ourselves, and if we have the ability to see like how other people are struggling, it really is um, something that affects the whole entire family. And I'm not sure how new this the information is, but I feel like it's quite new, this idea of understanding that trauma affects not just the survivor, not just the person who's going through the immediate trauma, but how much it impacts the people that are around them. Mm-hmm. Yes, and like I said, it's something that's been known for a while, but it's, it's been this secret. You know, let's not talk about it because, you know, if I'm taking care of my child who's been in a horrific fire, car accident, whatever it is, how dare I even acknowledge that I'm tired? What right do I have to ignore this this headache that I've had for the last three days? And we see it all the time. And when we talk about compassion fatigue, it really is that. And I it's 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 very easy to focus on little Dennis laying in that hospital bed in the burn unit. It's very easy to focus on him. But what about that lady sitting next to the bed for eight months as well? You know, did anybody even notice her? And we hear it and we see it all the time. You know, I call them the the obscure sufferers, the ones who are suffering death just as much, but in obscurity because you don't see it, you know, and, and, and communication is so incredibly important and, 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 and John knows that uh, I talk a lot, <laughs> but, but it's not just talking, it's, it's communicating because something as simple as communication can actually be communication, I say it, um, because, and, and, you know, having the privilege of working with kids at different burn camps and having them share some of their struggles, and I ask, well, what do your parents feel about that? And those kids are quick to tell you, oh, no. I, I, I don't. I wouldn't tell my parents because it'll make them sad. But talking to adults and their struggle, it's like, wow, you're really struggling with that. What do your kids feel about that? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I couldn't dare tell my kids because I got to be strong for them. So everyone's looking out for everyone, but there's this huge chasm where there's just this communication breakdown because everyone wants to look out for everyone else. And and for me, growing up through my experience. Uh, I lost all of my friends. And when I say all of my friends, everyone in my world became a caregiver. So even my friends were caregivers, which meant they were no longer friends because when you hang out with your friends, you're not constantly asking, how are you? What do you need? That, that, that's not mm-hmm. what you do. And that's what everyone was doing in my world. And I had to wear the, I didn't have to, I, I wore the smile that people were expecting because everyone wanted me to be okay. And there's so much effort being put into taking care of me. If all they want is for me to be okay, let me pretend to be okay. You know, um, I would get on my knees every night, every night, my ritual, and I would pray. I would pray to God and try to broker a deal. Let this be the night that I die in my sleep. But that was the only escape I saw for this living hell I was going through. And for a very long time, the sunrise meant a broken heart for me because it meant another day that I was gonna have to live this, this what I call a living hell, 
you know, live this existence. Because I was in the hospital eight months, but when I got out of the hospital, I hid in the house for two years because I was so ashamed wow. of how I looked. You know, I mean, I hid in the house. When I say hid in the house two years, I hid in the house. I only came out for doctor's appointments, period. You know, I would look out my window and I would literally watch the world pass by. I mean, I would watch winter turn to spring, turn to summer, turn to fall, turn to winter again. So I was literally looking out the window, watching the world pass me by and just not seeing any any future, not knowing that I could be more than a survivor. I didn't know I could be more than a survivor because I didn't even view myself as survivor. And I got burned as a teenager at 14. And I know, John, we were real close to the same age because I think when you got injured, you were about 17, I think, or something, were you? I was turning mm-hmm. 19 that summer. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and those teen years are such a... We're still trying to find ourselves when we're teenagers. We're still trying to figure out who we are and what we're going to be. And and I'm sure what I'm saying resonates with you, John, because we were about the same age. I was 14. You were 18, you know. Yeah. And you're, and you're also in the, you're also in the, as the teenagers, you're, you're in that independent stage where you're trying to prove to the world that you know enough to get through. And at night, 18, almost 19, I was a bit of an arrogant kid too. Like I was, you know, I had to grow up tough because I was bullied and teased and made fun of growing up sort of thing. So I grew up, you know, fighting tough quote sort of thing. And so when I woke up as this burn survivor and, you know, get through all the initial, like, you know, what was me sort of thing in victim stage, like I saw that, um, I saw that I had to, uh, really, um, I, I had to uh, say to the world that like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, now when you said that to yourself, did you believe it? I was a bit arrogant. So I was like, yeah, I was going to, I was going to get through this no matter what. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good for you. Well, our experiences yeah. were, were, were very, very different. Um, and, and, and for me, the difficulty, the greater difficulty was seeing the impact on the people in my, in my world um, and seeing how they struggled and seeing how, the, how loud the silence was, if that makes sense, because there were so many unspoken things. Um, I never said, it took me... Oh, man, I was up in your neck of the woods, John. I was doing a young adult retreat in Calgary, actually. And one of the attendees, he just said, I hate that I got burned because these scars are so effing ugly. And he started crying. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't need anyone to tell him that, no, it's not that bad. He didn't need anyone to tell him to be thankful that you're alive. He didn't need any, he just needed to say it because it's how he felt. And someone else started crying. And then someone else started crying. And there I I am, I'm crying and snot running everywhere. Um, (laughs) Because we all felt that. (laughs) And that was the first time that I said out loud that I didn't like what happened to me. Now you're talking 25 years post burn, uh, maybe, 
but it was the first time now, I had been feeling it and I had been carrying the weight of that, those feelings, but to hear it come out of my mouth and to hear my voice say it out loud, it was so incredibly painful. Um, and, and, and although it was painful, it was equally just as cathartic because it allowed me to go to a whole nother level of healing. And I think, and I'm, I'm very careful not to give advice, but I think sometimes uh, the fear of the pain prevents us from stepping into it because there's not a path of least resistance. We step into it and we go through it. Um, and I don't want to say that I was so brave that I chose to do it. On some level I did, but it was being at a retreat. It was being at an event. It was being in the presence of others who allowed themselves to be vulnerable that I found myself being vulnerable as well. You know, I don't want to pretend that I'm this wise old sage and strong. No, it, it wasn't that at all for me. Um, it was, and I've learned as a facilitator, as a speaker, that to be effective in doing that, I have to become a part of the process. You know, I can't be the teacher at the chalkboard in front of the class teaching the students. No, I have to be in that in those seats with those students because we're all learning. You know, um, you guys got history being burned. You guys are doing really well in your lives. You can be doing a lot of other things, but you choose to do a more than a survivor podcast. You know, you don't have to do it, but you understand that they say helping is like perfume. You can't sprinkle it on other people without getting a little bit on yourself, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah. Uh, and for me, um, I do want to help. I do extend myself because there were so many people that extended themselves to help me. There were family members, there were friends, there were people I knew. There were a lot of people that I didn't know, you know, that extended themselves but I went through a phase where I was fighting for my victimhood. <laughs> I was holding on to it where I could have, I could run into a hundred people a day and 99 will embrace me. And if one rejected me, that's the one I focused on. And we talk a lot about staring and staring is rude and those kind of things. No, I don't think staring is rude. Um, I focus on that one because that's what I was looking for when I step out the door in the morning, you know, and we do tend to find what we're looking for. Cause if I chose to, I could be a victim tomorrow if I chose it, you know, but I choose to be a survivor. Cause anyone who knows me, if you ask me how I'm doing, my response is excellent and getting better all the time. That's my response. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that would be my response. If, I, if, if you asked me and I was in my sleep, you know, and one would say, well, how can you be excellent getting better? Because I know you've got a bad back and I know your knee is hurting you by the way you're walking. Now, if you ask me how I feel, <laughs> that's different than asking me how I'm doing, because what goes on with me physically and what goes on in the world around me has very little impact on how Dennis is doing. And, and being a survivor, being more than a survivor or just being a survivor is something we have to own. We have, we have to own it. You know, uh, I can't be a survivor simply because I say I'm a survivor because it's just a word. You know, I can say I love you to a total stranger, but it's just a word. And for me, survival is something you have to own. And I fought for so long to be a victim that I fight twice as hard now every day. 
to be a survivor, you know, and it's not just for me, <laughs> you know, I understand that we, whether we like it or not, uh, we're role models, you know, we are, you know, you guys have visible burns and you're out in the world every day and people see that and you never know whose life is impacted in a positive way just because of your presence. And I do know for a fact that the people we influence the most in our journey are the people we'll never have any idea. We'll never have any idea of those, those people who we influence the most. And it's not all these big things. Sometimes it's just a smile to somebody who's feeling invisible one day. You know, maybe I it's completely just a pat on the back mm -hmm, for somebody who's dealing with isolation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's have this conversation because I'm, I'm, I'm. No, it's I'm, it's part. No, no. You, I I totally agree with you. It's the you know, you never know who you're who you're impacting, and you never know how you're going to impact until they share it with you. And mm -hmm. you know, it's yeah, it's it's we never know who is looking up to us. I have a mirror. I have a sign in my bathroom. You know, you know, uh, you know, playful out because you don't know who's watching. You don't know who's looking up to you today. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and it's and it's 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 true. And and I, I early on in my speaking career, um, I was speaking at a high school in Ohio, and for a long time I fought it because I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to, you know. I convinced myself that what happened to me wasn't a big deal, so that anything that happened to me related to that wouldn't be a big deal. So it was a survival. Um, process for me. And then you fast forward and people asked me to start talking about it. But on some level, I still felt like it wasn't a big deal. So I was looking for any reason not to do it. And I was speaking at a high school and these kids were out of order. I mean, they just, it was an assembly and they were just having a good time. And I remember the principal tried to introduce me and he said, this is not how we act when we have guest in our house. You're not setting a good example. They weren't listening. He said, I'll forget it. And he handed me the microphone and said, okay, Dennis, do, do your, do your talk. And I'm saying, well, hell, if they're not listening to the principal, <laughs> they're, surely, they're surely not going to listen to me, but I had committed to doing the presentation and I did the presentation, but I was just so ready to get out of there. You know, just let me get home because and I didn't think anybody was listening because they were rude. They were dis disorderly. But I did the presentation and I went home. I went back to Michigan. And that was all the confirmation I needed. I said, I knew no one wanted to hear it. And that was my confirmation. I'm never speaking at another high school ever. And I, I remember being home uh, in my home office and I got a phone call. Cause I had another high school to do later that week and I had already decided I wasn't going to do it. I'm trying to figure out just what excuse am I going to give them? <laughs> and as I'm contemplating on the excuse <laughs> to not speak, I got a phone call and it was the mother of one of the kids in that auditorium. And she told me, she said, Mr. Dennis, I needed to call you to say thank you. She said, my son came home yesterday and he told me about this speaker and 
he and I talked about it and we talked about our own stuff. And there were a lot of barriers and walls broken down between me and him. And we talked and we cried and we made a connection that had been long overdue. And I called the school and got your number because I needed to call you to thank you for coming to the school. And she hung up the telephone and I'm sitting there. Now I can't, I got to do the other school. (laughs) But I share that story because if she hadn't called me, I never would have known that I had any impact. You couldn't have told me anybody in that other term, listen to me. But I also, it, it, it had me to call myself out because it made me realize that I have a story to tell. We have, everyone's got a story to tell. And it's not for me to determine who that story's for. You know, I've been given a story and if an opportunity opens a door for me to step through and share a message, I have to do that because for me to want to know that I impacted somebody, that's my ego. And I think you spoke on this earlier, John. It has nothing to do with me, you know, uh, but because I stepped to it and 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 stepped into my purpose, if you will, um, I just have to do it because I know it's what I'm supposed to do. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dennis Garden. Join us next time for part two of this amazing interview. Your support means everything to us. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, like, and leave a rating. Your feedback not only helps us reach more people, but it also makes our show even better. Got a question or a thought on today's topic? Drop us a comment. We read every single one. And if you think a friend would appreciate this episode, don't hesitate to share it. We'll see you next time. Thanks and goodbye.